Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. All right, everyone, we have got a special breaking news episode of Expansive CEO Podcast today with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies, to talk about what's happening right now with Silicon Valley Bank, which just went into what's called FDIC receivership, which means the bank failed yesterday on March 10th. Today is Saturday, March 11th. And so, you know, last time we had a big bank failure like this was in the 2008 2009. Uh, time frame with the Great Recession, and a lot of people are, you know, um, rightfully concerned about what this means for the overall economy. Like, oh, that's a big bank failure. Why, you know, what should we be looking for? Why did this happen? So we're going to try to answer some of those questions for you today, um, including, you know, what does that potentially mean for the stock market going forward. So first, Brad, tell us what is a bank failure and you know what does that actually mean in terms of like the investor, you know, not even investors, the people who had deposits in that bank at Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. So a bank failure is 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 just that. It is the it is a sense essence when they don't have enough money to continue operations. Meaning you want to write a check on your account to withdraw some money and they can't provide the cash to you to make that withdrawal. That's when the bank fails. They fail their duty as a financial intermediary where they take in deposits and loan money out. Um, so what happens is there's state and federal regulators that step in. You mentioned um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company Corporation will step in, FDIC, will step in and place the company into receivership, meaning they're now running the company. They're now running the bank. Um, they're responsible for funding the loans, collecting the interest payments, paying the employees. They're, they're responsible for literally opening the doors on Monday morning for the customers of of the of what was it formerly known as Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so that is a classic bank failure. Mm -hmm. Now, what does it mean to the average depositor? Okay, um, you know, for for us sitting here, we're in we're we're thinking in in terms of individual investors or individual you know depositors, where you know. Our households have checking accounts and savings accounts at our bank. We may have a mortgage. We may have an auto loan, maybe a credit card or some other type of revolving debt. Um, that's very different from what Silicon Valley Bank did. Silicon Valley Bank made their name over the last 40 years in banking um, technology startups, technology, fast-growing, younger fast-growing uh, technology companies where they specialized in providing uh, banking relationships, but also some other ancillary um, services to those individuals or to those companies. Um, so it's a little different than than what, as we sit here as individuals thinking how that impact. Yeah. Now, one one uh, little detail I wanted to 
mention here that so people kind of get the the uh, scope of the difference here is that with like Silicon Valley Bank, like you mentioned, they were mainly funding the tech sector. You know, like a lot of venture capital was deposited. You know, so if you think about a young tech startup company and they get, you know, a hundred million dollars in funding, they need to put it somewhere. A portion of that they would put like that's the kind of stuff, the kind of money that Silicon Valley Bank would get on their deposit sheets, you know, that these these tech startups would place their money there. Um, you know, one article uh that I read um by Ken Sweet of the AP was saying that um Roku had like $427 million of cash on deposit at Silicon Valley Bank. And so, um, Brad, we can mention uh, again well, that any any stocks, any like companies that we talk about, this it's purely informational. Um, this is not any sort of, um, you know, buy, sell, anything um, recommendation. This is purely information. Um, but yes, yeah, so it, it's not like, like you said, not like if I have my personal savings account at some bank, this is like big companies with a lot of money on deposit in large chunks. Does that? Yes. And, and perfect. And they did a fantastic job, by the way, for 40 years. Okay. Um, and I think they've been one of the main banks in helping develop the tech sector. So it's, it's, they've done a, you know, in, in certain ways, they, they, over their history, they've done a pretty decent job. Uh, they made a few mistakes, obviously, which we'll discuss a little later. But if you want to stay with Roku, as an example, again, not a solicitation to buy or sell Roku. It's just an example of, of what's going to happen is $250,000 was FDIC insured. Mm -hmm. So that money is, is good to go. It's, it's Roku's money. The problem becomes is any dollar over that limit becomes an unsecured creditor of Silicon Valley Bank. So what does that mean? That's a big name for just a person that kind of has to wait in line to see how the FDIC runs the bank, liquidates the assets, pays off their loans, and then obviously depositors are fairly high in the capital structure. So the FDIC is going to do their best to pay as much as possible to those depositors who are uninsured, who don't, who have, have exceeded that insurance um, for their, for their assets. So, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about how problematic that could be for some of those companies um, in, at least in the, in the short term. Um, so that's that's kind of how they'll be treated. Yeah, and so that's again that really opens up that conversation again, right? Because it's like four hundred and twenty something million dollars is a lot different than you know your grandparents having two hundred fifty thousand or five hundred thousand um, dollars at a local bank. So yeah, that's a big asset to have to you know figure out how much are they going to be able to get back. Um, and then what does that mean, you know, for all the companies who are in that same spot, but what happened with the bank run, right. This past week was that, um, because they serve so many business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, a lot of people couldn't get their money out to make payroll. 
And so, you know, like this is, this is not just a, it's not just um, a bank issue. This does ripple into the economy in some ways. Um, so yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next week um, and what the FDIC is able to, you know, stabilize. Yeah. So what, what you, you mentioned two things, like, you know, there were two major mistakes that happened in your view, you know, as a financial risk manager um, and, you know, those things happened over the last couple of weeks, but what should people maybe have seen coming before? What was SVB doing differently from other, you know, mainstream banking institutions? Well, they did a, they, they made a classic asset liability mismatch mistake. Um, a couple of really big ones where um, they ran. So their business model, like we were talking about tech, tech, tech heavy, um, very focused in one industry or a couple of industries. Um, and, and, and having that has some, some higher risk attributes like um, their depository base is not as sticky as say a larger bank. Okay, that has a lot of individual depositors um, and some banks or and some companies and some governments that they bank. So that type of banking institution, their depository base is probably a lot more sticky, a lot more stable. Um, when you focus in one area that is fast growing, it's real exciting. But those those deposits are not as sticky. They can move very, very quickly and they're very interest rate sensitive. So if they can get a little bit more somewhere else, those those are what we call hot deposits. They're gone. They're going mm -hmm. to the place where the highest return can be can be had. Similarly, the loans, they can get if they can get uh, a little bit less in terms of interest expense, they're gone. They're going to refinance that loan. And so uh, Silicon Valley Bank has been very aggressive in those areas. OK, mm -hmm. but what the mistakes I think they did this time were one. They loaded up on a lot of bonds right before interest rates started going up. Mm -hmm. In fact, about fifty, roughly fifty percent of their of their assets were in what we call available for sale securities or securities that they were willing to sell at a certain point. Well, the way you account for those is a little is a little different. Okay, so. Uh, it doesn't necessarily hit your income statement until you sell it, but it does hit your equity via a, a, a category called other comprehensive income. So these unrealized gains and losses are realized through this other, other category, but it hits their equity on their balance sheet. So let's let's talk about that for a second because that's one of the main differences when you talk about, you know, um, it just in, in your listener, in your mind, like think about mm -hmm. your bank that you bank with. That's one of like the, I don't know, top five names, just normal banks. Um, when you, you know, have a mortgage um, or when you have deposits on, on file, no, let's go back to the, to the loan. Cause that's, that one's the more um, applicable one, right? So if, if you have your mortgage with an, any normal bank, that is typically accounted for, you know, as like this, you're going to hold this till the end. 
right? You're just going to hold, what did we call that? Hold to maturity. Hold to maturity. Right? HTM, so that's, yep. yep. Hold to that's maturity category. accounting. And so most banks have most of that. Is that correct? Like they correct. will- they will usually have hold to maturity, right? Or as yes. a larger por portion of uh, their loan portfolio, which means it's a more stable line item on the bank's balance sheet. Is that the right way to say that? Yes. And the regulators really, if you have uh, bonds that you designate at, at, the at the initiation or at the inception of that loan or that bond or, or that you purchase, either way... Um, and you designate it as hold the maturity, um, they uh, regulators do not like to see you sell from there because hmm. they're going to start questioning, well, why was it designated as hold the maturity if you thought you may need to sell that particular secur security? Okay. Now, just to give you an idea, um, most banks have a lot of held the maturity uh, category. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, so you collect then, the interest income and, and the unrealized losses and gains aren't really booked into your accounts. Right. You're just taking the interest and and you're just holding that until maturity. That's how you stabilize that value of the bond. Um, so if we're doing, say it again, uh, available for sale. Yes. Instead, the fact that that one piece of SVB's balance sheet was much higher than typical, that's what you're saying was one of the initial Problems. orange flags. Yes. We'll so they had 58% of their balance sheet in available for sale securities, meaning their bonds that they're going to sell at some point prior to maturity uh, of the of the bond. Now, the how you book the the unrealized gains and losses you know as they go up and down as interest rates go up and down those bond prices go up and down and so what happens is uh they, it's accounted for by again unrealized gains and losses going through this other balance sheet mechanism called other comprehensive income and it's booked directly to your equity section of your balance sheet it doesn't go through your, the income statement Okay, so that's a pretty interesting or pretty important detail mm -hmm. because this is where, again, Silicon Valley Bank sold $21 billion. Now, once they sold that, that loss was now booked via their income statement. Okay. And the loss was what again? How much About did it? About $1.8 billion. Okay, so close okay. to $2 billion of a loss that lowered their total equity capital equity equity capital of the whole bank yep so what happened was what happens um is um so that's the second category we have there the third category is trading security which the it, it's mark to market whatever the price is trading that's where they market and the gains and losses go through your income statement um now what they did wrong is they had a lot uh, in the available for sale, which you have mentioned, but then they also did not hedge the interest rate risk. Mm -hmm. So they had built this large bond position at when the interest rates were very, very low, 2021-ish, okay? And in 2022, I'm sure they did not 
believe that the Fed was going to increase interest rates, you know, greater than 4% in one 12 month period, but they did because they needed to fight inflation. And so generally in that scenario, banks hedge their interest rate risk, meaning it offsets most, if not all of the value change the unrealized loss in those bonds. What Silicon Valley did, which is uh, unbelievable to me, is they did not, they, they actually removed what little hedge they had in 2022. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of playing from a risk standpoint, they had a, their business model was inherently more risky than than other banks of that size. But then they coupled it with pretty lax risk management, um, which is inevitably why they they went out of business. So, yeah, that's um, one of the pieces of information that I think people are trying to understand more now, right, is what does the interest rate hike do to bond prices, right? So when interest rates rise, the value of a bond goes down, right? And yes. So can, you, and yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So it, it's real easy to, I'm going to, I'm going to use a very extreme example just to clarify that point as to why, because a client or an investor doesn't need to really memorize that. They can just think of an example, like, you know, if you bought two years ago, a bond that pays you 1% and it's going to come due in five years. Okay. So it's going to pay you 1%. And then the fed increases interest rates from 1% to 5%. Okay. Well, you would rather have that 5% interest Mm -hmm. rate bond, right? right? Well, if you want to sell this bond, everybody else in the world, wants that 5%. So what has to happen to the price of your bond? It has to crater. It has to go down. (laughs) So what happens is the price falls to the point where your 1% interest rate bond yields 5% or the current yield that's being offered on the market. Mm -hmm. So as interest rates go up, again, people prefer to have those higher interest rates your price has to go down to compensate for that, which is really, really important for bank managers or bank presidents or or chief and financial officers to understand that concept. And I believe they, they, they clearly understand that concept, but for whatever reason, they decided not to have interest rate hedges, which is what inevitably took them down. Yeah, so that's super interesting to to think about it in that way that it's like it seems like a very large oversight that should have been in place that could have allowed it's, them to be okay through this hiking interest rate period. It's uh unbelievably incompetent. Mm. Uh it's and I don't use that term very often. Right. To be, to be Strong frank. words. <laughs> But uh, for someone running a 212 to $220 billion bank, it is a real, it's shocking to people in my industry that they did not have interest rate hedges in place because that is the, that's the normal business operation. That's the normal, that's the normal course of business. That's what you do. 
uh, in a bank because of the volatility in those securities during different interest rate regimes, you know? Um, so it, it is really a very difficult for me to understand what was going on. Now, they had, we already talked about their business model was already inherently more risky than most banks. You mm -hmm. can do that all day long if you take care of the risk on your balance sheet. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can function for that like that for a very, very long time. Um, unfortunately, they combined, again, a risky business model with a lax risk environment. And, and that's, that's just in, incompatible. Uh, it, it, it's it's literally mutually exclusive. Mm. So I, I think this um, this helps explain like the other the second mistake that you were talking about, which was having sold the securities, sold those bonds, and booked that nearly two billion dollar loss. So talk about that a little bit more. That yeah, you know, one led to the other basically. Yeah, I think I think that part of the I, I think part of the part of what I think was the issue, and again, this is just my opinion, is uh, the communication around the the financial distress. Um, mm -hmm. I think if the CEO came out and said, "Hey," and this is prior to doing anything, if he would have told the investors and you know and the analysts on Wall Street, if they said, "Yes, we're 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 suffering a little bit." Here's the plan how we're going to solve this issue. One, we are going to sell $21 billion from our uh, available for sale bond portfolio. It's going to book a loss. This is the estimated loss. Okay. Two, we're going to make up for that loss in our equity capital by having an institutional investor, a sovereign wealth fund, a very large patient equity investor inject $2 billion into the firm. So their equity would be fairly unchanged. Okay. Um, unfortunately, what he did is he, they sold the $21 billion, which I understand why they kind of did that beforehand. But when they tried, when he said, hey, we're going to also sell 2.3 billion in equity. Well, once, once everybody kind of figured out they're under a lot of distress and he didn't have equity investors backed up, already identified and committed well then it's then it's then it's you're you're allowing everybody in the banking industry your depositors your clients your part your 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 uh, banking peers they all know it's 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 kind of over and so mm -hmm. i think part of it was a little bit of a communication issue where they, they did the sale already. They took the equity impairment via the loss and they didn't have someone already willing to put that 2.3 billion in instantly. Mm -hmm. um, it would have been very different had they sold it and the, and the, and the, whoever the investor equity investor would have been had already put the money in. And then he could have come out and said to, to everybody, the regulators, to the investors, to, Hey, we did this to shore up our capital. We took a loss because, again, we didn't have interest rate hedges. The, the value of these securities went down, but we've made up for it because we've already had an equity injection by this, in, this investor. 
okay? Um, I, I think if they had done that, then I think Silicon Valley would have been, uh, could have could have survived it. One of the other things they had, which was early in this week, uh, again, they had they they do a lot of venture funds. They service a lot of venture funds, and they had two very large venture funds tell their portfolio companies, "Hey, Silicon Valley Bank, we don't think they're going to make it. You should be looking to transfer your deposits elsewhere." And so, mm -hmm. what happened? They did. They started hitting the hitting the uh, the transfer button on Tuesday, you know, Monday, Tuesday. And that accumulated into a $43 billion draw on Thursday, which is uh, eventually what took the bank down. So this is so interesting because I want to I want to pull it into this area for a second, because when we talk about, OK, they had, you know, what was it two over 200 billion, right? Capitalization total. Correct. Uh, yeah. Assets. Yep. Of assets. And when we talk about. 43 billion came out in deposit uh, out of like they're taking it out um, of their accounts. Well, why didn't they have that on the balance sheet? Why didn't they have that available if they've got, you know, over 212 billion in deposits? Um, that's, you know, what people have put in. Well, now 43 billion has come out and that has like caused the bank to fail. The math, when we hear it just in that way, like the math isn't mathing, but part of the problem, um, I wanted to tie it into Dodd-Frank regulations, okay. right? And so what's happening with that? Like why, you know, is the balance sheet so off to where people can't withdraw funds to the amount that the bank says they have on file. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and the, the regulations that are in place? Um, yeah, so so again, um, this is a very idiosyncratic issue with this bank. Not to say there aren't, aren't other banks out there that will suffer and be distressed during this time of higher interest rates. It happens during every interest rate cycle that banks that run kind of lacks risk risk protocols, lacks policies, lacks risk procedures, and they have a little bit more of an aggressive model. And during every inter interest rate cycle, they, they tend to go out of business um, mm -hmm. just because, again, those are fairly mutually exclusive. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Um, Dodd-Frank um, forced banks to raise capital levels. Okay. Now, there's a really critical area, a delimiter or a demarker, if you will, at 250 billion in assets. Hmm. the The regulations get much more strict above 250 billion in assets. Now, you'll notice they were just below that cap. Hmm. They were just below that marker. So, if you are um, cynical, a little bit like me, then you'll think, wow, they kind of rode all the way to where they think they could not get the higher regulations, the higher requirements, the more, more require more capital. Um, so they, they might've ridden that, that limit. Additionally, the CEO is lobbying pretty significantly about relaxing 
some of those restrictions on smaller banks so that they could employ more aggressive uh, policies and, and practices. Um, so again, if you're going to be cynical, then you're going to think, wow, that was kind of all orchestrated a little bit, which led to the issues that they're having today. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, Dodd-Frank was, is there for a reason. Um, I saw a great illustration from JP Morgan Asset Management that took, uh, the cat, their, all, of the major, uh, banks in the United States, they took their tier one capital, which is kind of like, this is your best capital. Okay. Patient. It's never not going anywhere. Um, and then they took that capital and they adjusted it for losses in on their balance sheet. And most of the U.S. banks are, are great. They're in great condition because of Dodd-Frank, because of those higher requirements. Okay. Um, SVB did not come out so well, mm. obviously. So it basically all of their all of the loss between the available for sale securities and the, the held to maturity, if they had to sell those, uh, wiped out their capital to almost zero. So this goes really well, you know, into this next question of what does this mean for other banks? Um, and you you kind of talked about this already in that, you know, if there are other smaller banks who are running these, you know, higher risk profile portfolios for the bank itself. Yeah, the higher the the way that the Fed is increasing interest rates that could have an impact on those banks running similar programs. But the bigger banks that we have that are, you know, stable that are over that $250 billion threshold where they have to keep more capital on hand. Um, those, you know, tell me a little bit about the stability of the system as a whole. So there will be some banks that struggle. All banks sold off pretty dramatically this week. Um, I mean, to the likes of JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank. I mean, there's a lot of international and local banks that got sold off pretty significantly this in, in sympathy. Okay. Some of them are fantastic institutions and they're selling their prices now down through no fault of their own. They run a conservative business. They're great. Um, it's just, I, I think investors, until they can assess who is running a more risky balance sheet, they're kind of stepping back and saying, okay, where, who, who's in the next default, if there is a next default. Now, um, I, I don't think, I mean, there, there may be some other banks that come out and, and, and fail or struggle um, based on kind of a contagion effect. Right. Because now investors are looking everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, a market watch article came out and they had they said these are the 20 banks to watch for. OK. Um, and so that may be scary if your bank is on that list. So I would encourage someone to call us. Call me. Let's do some analysis and figure out whether it's a it's a safer bank or whether it's a bank that is going to struggle. Um, by far and large, most US banks are in good condition. But it's like it's like the analogy with the with the with the wave that goes out. Once a wave 
once a tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing a bathing suit, right? Well, the interest rate cycle is that wave that went out to the sea and, you know, SVB and a couple of other banks already are the ones to, to, to have their, um, to have their, unfortunately their day, um, their day of reckoning. So uh, it's, it's something that uh, it, it could, it could have a contagion effect. It's, I think it's a fairly unlikely. I think it's fairly unlikely at this point. Um, So one of the things I am concerned about though, is how depositors are going to interpret some of these results. Mm. Meaning, you know, if, if I had a hundred million dollars at Silicon Valley bank, and that was my main bank. Um, I'm just going to pull my money from all small banks and go to the very, very large ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that may be a terrible business decision, but we don't know. And so that's where I'm, I'm concerned that I think there might be a, a bit of an overreaction. Um, from what I can tell, SVP, SVB, excuse me, was a very idiosyncratic issue um because of the way they managed risk during a up uh, in any an increasing interest rate cycle um so but can it can it expose some other weaker financial institutions it it, it can it can yeah that's really that's really interesting um to kind of think about the shaking out of you know how how that could play out and um to reiterate your offer of like hey if you have questions like reach out like let's let's look we can dig in um to some of these you know other companies they're they are public companies right and so if they are we can we can look we can dig in and see yeah how healthy are these other institutions how are they managing risk like that's when you are a banking institution that's your main priority right is managing risk. Um, so what does this mean for the stock market as a whole? What is, what do you see as, you know, the next, the next week, the next couple of weeks, how, how do you see this playing out, um, in broad strokes? Broad strokes. Uh, one, I think you're going to see a lot of really good financial institutions get sold off pretty, pretty aggressively. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, because I think they're being sold off many times. Uh, some of these companies are being sold off for no reason uh, because their risk their risk uh, practices are are much tighter, much more conservative than Silicon Valley banks or SVB. Um, so I do think that uh, as investors become more concerned with the health of financial institutions, it will cause a lot of downside volatility with some of those. the entire banking industry um which is too bad but for patient investors it may be a a great time to look at some of these but uh, again i'm not we are not overweight financials so i'm not uh i'm not uh, recommending or not recommending you buy or sell financial institutions right now um what i'm saying is there's going to be a lot of volatility in that area as uh, regulators figure out what's going to happen with the SV- SVP over the next six weeks, um, and as 
uh, investors search for the next weak link. Mm. Um, if there is a, a long period of time, then it, it will be a very much of non-event. Um, but if there are other banks that are weaker, that are that the regu that investors find, and you start hearing those whispers, then that could be accelerating the demise of those institutions. Mm. But again, they're not going to be the they're not going to be the banks that you know um, off the top of your tongue unless you live in their locale. Um, they're going to be smaller. And so the other question I have, um, so beyond you know just the financial sector, uh, which is you know in in most portfolios that does tend to be a, you know a pretty big um, holding for for most investors. Um, what about like? the tech companies. Um, do you see any knock-on effects for, for, you know, large tech, which has had a rough year already? Do you think that um, increases or, or changes anything in the tech sector? Uh, yes, it will change some things, but it won't change for, for the very, very large tech companies. It won't change much. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're a small startup or a small a uh, tech company that's, you know, a small cap tech company that's based there and your major banking relationship is there, that's going to be a difficult time for you to get through to, to get your funds. Okay. Now I think they'll get a majority of their funds, but it's a timing issue. How fast does the FDIC work through this issue? And that during the next four to six weeks can be a can be a, a volatile period as we get more news dribbling out about you know uh, depositors getting recoveries you know they're they're getting their money out they're they're able to 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 uh cert, you know pay their employees and pay their vendors and and operate uh in a normal fashion um for companies tech companies that had a uh had a um most of their money with Silicon Valley Bank, that is going to be a question mark for a bit. Mm. So those companies could come under volatility, which again is it's it's uh, you know it's it, it is what it is. But um, you know, hopefully, hopefully they're able to put together financing and sources of capital that they're able to uh, exist during this uh, uncertain period. Mm. Well. Um, Thank you, Brad, for talking with me about this. It's all over the news um, right now. And so we, you know, I wanted, I know for my, for my own clients and friends and people who have been asking me questions, I wanted to, you know, get your voice of reason and understanding of, you know, like a very deep understanding of risk in the financial markets. Um I really wanted to get that perspective. So I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? No, um, I think that uh, we'll see SVB being sold by the FDIC to another entity. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. All right. Well, keep a 
we'll keep you all posted with uh, what comes up next. And if you have any questions um, that have come up from this episode, be sure to reach out and reach out to me um, at hannah at expansiveceo.com or hannah.chapman at x2wealthplanning.com or to Brad Haynes um, at B Haynes, H-A-I-N-E-S at junctureWealth.com. So all of that will be in the show notes and thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.